It is so good to partake with our children. Amen? I love it. I do. I love kids. They're fun. Well, today we are going to continue in our series in the book of 1 Corinthians called Christ Culture Church, which we have those wonderful words behind me. As we remember what God has for us as a body of believers, we're going to be digging deeply into the book of 1 Corinthians. What is the truth for us that we are to gather from this book? So let us pray one more time, and then we will dive into the word of the Lord together as we focus our hearts on God's word. Heavenly Father, we just pray that you will speak through your spirit who wrote the word of God, carried along the apostles and disciples and other authors. We ask for you to illuminate your word to our hearts this morning. Not so that we can just learn something new, but we can become someone new. Transformation, not just information. We thank you in advance for all that you will do. In your name, amen. Amen. This week I received a, a message from a college student who's no longer a college student. She works for Johnson & Johnson. Uh, she's a phenomenal, phenomenal person. And nine years ago, she reminded me of a sermon illustration that I had utilized in uh, our, our sermon, our service time at our church plant called Aletheia at the University of Pittsburgh. And she reminded me of the power of this story in her life, and it brought her to a remembrance of the goodness of God, and the story continued to resonate in her life. And I believe that that story, narratives, can connect us deeply to the truths of God. And I don't just say that as a preacher, I say that as a student of Scripture, because if you were to look at Jesus' teaching, he taught predominantly in story, parable. And there are probably many parables that stick deeply into your heart or your mind where you're constantly mulling them over. And one of the ones that consistently comes to mind for me comes from Matthew 18, 21 through 35. And it's the parable of the ungrateful servant. Many of you may remember that there was a servant who owed millions and millions of dollars to a king. And he begged the king to forgive him of his debt, which would have taken over a hundred years to pay off. That's a lot of debt. And the king, seeing this man's begging and passion to, to be released from this prison of debt, the king said, you are now free from your debt. I will, I will take that from you. Moments later, as this servant goes out into the city streets, he meets a man who owes him roughly what would be equivalent to about 10, maybe 20 bucks with inflation. And he says, you owe me my money. And the, the, the man says, please, please, I will pay you back. Just be patient. Just wait for me. And the ungrateful servant says, go to jail until you can pay off that small debt. And you look at that and you say, how in the world could someone who has just been saved from a deep, amazing, incredible amount of money in a debt go ahead and turn around and hold someone to a small debt to owe them. Well, as I mull over that particular parable, I see myself in it. Because I am the ungrateful servant who has been freed from so much debt, as we just remembered, the debt of sin, that, that I deserve death. For Romans says the wages of sin is death. 
But the gift of God is eternal life. And we see the truth of that, but we often walk ungrateful in our lives. It's easy to take for granted all of the gifts that God has given us. It is easy to take for granted our salvation and forget the forgiveness that we have received and do not offer that same forgiveness in return. A commentator on the book of 1 Corinthians named Fee reminds us that gratitude starts by seeing this. Everything we have comes from God and is in Christ. We're going to be looking at grateful Christianity this morning from the book of 1 Corinthians. Because as Paul is unpacking this passage, as he's about to launch into the entirety of the rest of this letter, he puts in this very small portion of Scripture how we can live as grateful Christians. And one of the things that Paul often does is he preempts where he's going in the letter right away at the very beginning. He, like a great African-American preacher, understood that great preaching and teaching starts with telling someone what you're going to tell them, telling them, and then telling them what you told them. Every letter we see from Paul does that. He says, here's what I'm going to talk to you about, here's what I'm talking to you about, oh, and here's what I just told you. You might read, read the scripture and say, wow, Paul, you already said that. Man, it's because we are like sheep. We're not super smart. We need to be reminded. And we might read through our devotionals and we might get little clips of scripture. And we need to be reminded of the truths of God consistently. We are to live grateful Christians. And Paul gives us a great example in this passage. He answers the question, how can we live out grateful Christianity? How can we live out grateful Christianity? So we will look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. I encourage you, we will be in the book of Corinthians for a while, so anytime you walk into the sanctuary, just put a bookmark in the book of 1 Corinthians, because that's where we're going to be. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. The word of the Lord. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. As we look at this passage, I believe that Paul gives us five aspects that we can add to our lives, five aspects of grateful Christianity. And the first aspect we see is the aspect of grace. Because God's grace is an undeserved gift given through Christ. God's grace is an undeserved gift given through Christ. How can the Corinthians and us in turn live grateful Christian lives? Well, the very first thing that Paul reminds us and them of is that everything we have has nothing to do with us. God's grace, God's favor, the goodness of God upon us who have believed in Jesus Christ has nothing to do with us. 
It has everything to do with Christ. You will see that a consistent theme that pulls through the book of 1 Corinthians is Christ. And we also will see a consistent theme of culture. And we will also see a consistent theme of, you got it, church. That's why we have the words in the back. Christ is constantly within this letter, always on Paul's mouth. And he said, it is the grace of God that has brought you this gift. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. And grace, the Greek word is charis, and it means favor, grace, gracious care, help, and goodwill. You'll see as we go on, one of the biggest problems with the church in Corinth is that they thought they were awesome. They looked at themselves and said, we, we're the greatest church in Greece. We might be the greatest church in the world. And they talked about themselves all the time. Look at, look at the great things. Look at the teachers that come to our church. <laughs> look, at the, look at the gifts we have. Look at the money we give to the poor. Look at all these things. Oh man, we're so good. And they believe their own press clippings. And that's why Paul consistently brings them to a place of humility and says it is God's grace upon you in Christ Jesus. It has nothing to do with you. And that's a hard message for the Corinthians to swallow, to embrace, to live by. And as Americans, as the Western world, that might be a tough one for us to receive and embrace as well. Fee, the commentator, says, In every redeemed person, there is evidence of the grace of God, and that brings forth Paul's gratitude, both to God and for them. So, Paul is about to start going after the sin in the church. But the very first thing he tells the church is, I am thankful for you. I want you to know, he's in the back of his mind, he's thinking, I'm about to give you a whooping. But before I do, know that I love you and that I'm thankful for you. Wouldn't that be great if we looked at our children and we knew that we're about to give them a verbal whooping and put them in timeout or something? We said, I'm so grateful for you. Do not forget it. Go to timeout. Right, this is basically what Paul is doing. He's setting the stage, letting them know, I'm about to just go on you with some stuff, but I am grateful for you. And he's not just grateful once in a while. The Greek word that means this, this aspect, he says, I give thanks to my God always. And we see in Greek it's pantote, and it means at all times. Every time I think of you, church in Corinth, even though you're frustrating, I'm thankful for you, always. The first response that he gives to God for this church is gratitude. Now that's tough. If people annoy you, if people frustrate you, and people don't listen to you when you have really good advice, it's not the first response usually to say, God, thank you for that really stubborn, frustrating person. <laughs> We're usually like, God, I just pray you take care of that sinful person. But that's not Paul's response. And he shows us that gratitude should be a continual act in the life of a believer. Gratitude should be a continual act in the life of a believer. He says, I always give thanks for you. 
And he will continue on in this letter about the things that God has given to him and the Corinthians, that he is full of gratitude. It, if you remember when we talked in Thanksgiving, we gave a message from 1 Corinthians later in the book about thankfulness. And one of my favorite statements from the wonderful lady, Patty, at Allegheny Center Alliance Church, she always said, if you grumpy, you ain't grateful. If you grumpy, you ain't grateful. So if you find yourself wandering through life grumpy, frustrated, angry all the time, you might want to take a test to your gratitude in your heart and realize, you know, if I'm walking so grumpy, if I'm always angry, if I'm always frustrated, I'm actually not very grateful. Because when you walk in this consistent gratitude, it just, it just keeps going. You're just so thankful. You step outside maybe and say, oh, thank you, Lord, for the sunshine. And even though I hate the winter, thank you, God, that I'm alive and that I have a garage that I don't have to scrape the ice off of my car. We can be thankful for everything. Continually grateful for what God gives to us. The second aspect of living a grateful Christian life is the aspect of gifts. Every spiritual gift promised in Scripture is available to believers today through Christ. Every spiritual gift promised in Scripture, is available to believers today through Christ. Look at what Paul says. He says, I'm always thankful for you, for the grace that God has given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge. And he goes on in verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift. This is a really big statement that Paul is stating to the church in Corinth. He's like, listen, God has given you incredible, incredible gifts. The gifts that you have, you're not lacking anything. God has poured out all knowledge and all speech to you. And we will see that if you were to look at, ahead to 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, he's talking about the gifts of discernment and the gifts of preaching and teaching and the gift of tongues, all those gifts that he will mention. He's like, listen, God has poured out all of these gifts to you as the church, and I'm thankful for that. But he reminds them that all of these gifts, they come from Christ. Again, Christ. He mentions Christ five times in this short passage. Go ahead and count it. I did my math four times just to make sure. <laughs> but see, he says that all of these gifts are possible in Christ. Why does he say that to the church in Corinth? When you get to 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, you'll realize it's because they thought the gifts were all about them. And they began to live in such a way of arrogance and entitlement that they would walk around and say, I have the gift of prophecy. I'm better than you because you just have the gift of hospitality. Yay, you, you have people over at your house. I preach the word of God. You see, this is how they were living their life. Entitlement, arrogance, thinking that they were better, but Paul, right off the bat, reminds them, these gifts have nothing to do with you. They come from Jesus Christ. And he's so good to you. Even though you're frustrating and annoying and arrogant and entitled, even though all of that, he has given you all the gifts and you don't lack a single thing. Have you ever talked to your children 
And they're just like grumpy because they wanted, you know, that new Xbox game or that new whatever, the newest shoes that are out there. And they just, they live that entitled life, right? Have you ever been there? Raise your hand, right? And you're like, listen, I've given you everything. You don't lack a single thing. Do you eat? Yes. Do you drink? Yes. Do you sleep in a nice bed with clean sheets? Yes. Thank you, Mom. Thank you, Dad. No, they don't lack anything. But yet they still live in this entitled world. Sadly, that is the culture we live around us. It is constantly saying you don't have enough. It's not good enough. You don't measure up because you don't have the newest, flashiest thing. Corinth was living the same type of life. They were living entitled. And here, Paul looks at them and says, you're not lacking anything. And it's all from God. He is so good to you. You're so annoying to him. But he still gives you good things. Praise the Lord, because I know I annoy him all the time. All the time. Ask my wife. Sword says this, Paul rejoices over them because these spiritual gifts are God's gifts. Even in the face of their abuse, Paul's confidence lies with God, the giver of gifts. His concern lies with the Corinthians. They don't lack any good gift. All of the spiritual gifts are evident in the church of Corinth, but they have been abusing them. They have been entitled, thinking that it's all about them. They've been proclaiming that their gift is better. They've been going a little bit wonky off the edge with their craziness that was happening inside the church. And he says, listen, this is all from God. It has nothing to do with you. The gifts are not inherently bad because the giver is good and he gives you gifts. You, the human agent of what God has given you, you're the one I'm worried about. So listen up. I'm grateful for you, but you're about to get a whooping. God loves you. God has given you good things, but there are a lot of things that you're messing up on. Paul is trying to get them to see that gratitude gives God glory for his gracious gifts. When we walk not in entitlement, but we walk in gratitude for what God has given us, we give him glory. I mean, when you wake up with gratitude and you're thankful to God for the gifts he's given, you give God glory. As we even came to the table of Christ, we were giving Christ glory for the gift of salvation, for the beauty of the cross and the power of the resurrection and the promise of the return. We're grateful and we're giving God glory for what he's done. I mean, have you ever just woken up and saw your, your frustrating person in your life, whether it's your kid or sometimes your spouse or sometimes your grandma, your grandpa, your dad, your mom, and you woke up and you said, God, thank you. I give you glory for that person. Probably not. But we could do that. And it would totally change your attitude, right? If someone's super frustrating and you're like, God, I give you glory for that frustrating person because they're a gift in my life sometimes. You'll look at that person and say, you know, I am thankful for you. You know what, that's, God is good. I woke up this morning. I put my feet on the floor. Uh, there was a guy at my old church in New York. When I would ask him, how are you doing? He said, my, heat, my feet hit the floor and I'm still smiling, praise God. I was like, how are you still smiling all the time? Because God is good. Man, God is good. Amen? 
We have given, been given great gifts from the Lord, and we can live in constant gratitude. The reason why they were abusing the spiritual gifts is because they were giving themselves glory and not giving God glory. We are not to glorify ourselves. When we begin to pat ourselves on the back or say how good we are or all the things that we do, if that's all we do, it's talk about the stuff that we do. I'm so humbled that God let me do all these great things. That's not humility. That's giving yourself glory, pretending like you're giving glory to God. We need to talk about the goodness of what God has done. Look at what God has done in our county. Look at what God has done in the world, that he's moving and that people are coming to know Jesus. I had nothing to do with me and everything to do with him. The third aspect is the aspect of the gospel. Because the gospel of Christ makes God's grace and gifts attainable. Like I said, he mentions Christ five times. He says in verse 6, Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He talks about Jesus consistently pointing to the goodness of the gospel, the truth of Christ's testimony. Man, this is where we find our gratitude, centered on the beauty of Jesus Christ and the gospel, that we can repent, that we can confess our sins, and even though we're a really hot mess, we still find salvation in Jesus. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Man, if that doesn't get your juices flowing and excited and grateful, I, there's nothing I can say or do that will make you more grateful than what that truly means. And when we rest in the gospel, we rest in the testimony of what Christ has done for us, it should well within us a, an energy and excitement and expectation and gratitude. I don't think that we often pause to think about the magnitude of the gospel. Because if we did, we would live totally different lives. If we stopped to pause on the magnitude of the gospel, how a wretch like me could be saved by a God that is all-holy, all-powerful, all-great, all-majestic, man, that just changes our perspective. The gospel is so powerful. The Greek word for testimony means proof, witness, or evidence. The gospel of Christ is not a hoax. It is a beautiful, passionate reality. And Paul is trying to remind the church in Corinth, you have been given good things. You have been given the testimony of Jesus Christ, the goodness of the gospel. Focus on that. Focus on that and live grateful for the beauty of the gospel that's been given. A commentator named Swords continues on in his idea of this specific passage, and he says, Here he forms a comparison between the reality of God's endowing the Corinthians with spiritual gifts and God's initial act of grace in bringing the Corinthians to faith through Christ. Paul's point here, then, is that God gives grace and enriches the Corinthians in the same way that God established faith in the gospel in the lives of the Corinthians. So we're reminded, and we can have this in view, that the gospel enlivens a life-altering gratitude for the one who believes. A life-altering gratitude. Even in the midst of circumstances that are frustrating, painful, difficult, we can thank God. 
Even if it seems that God is not working, He really is working in our lives. And we need to ask the Holy Spirit, give me eyes to see what you're doing because I can't see a thing right now. The gospel is where we are enlivened with a passionate gratitude. And when we rest in the truth of the gospel, we won't be grumpy. We'll be grateful. If you find yourself grumpy, that means you're not resting in the gospel. (laughs) Rest in the gospel. And when you rest in the gospel, you'll want to share the gospel. That's what we're called to do. Why don't we share the gospel? Because we're not resting in the gospel. Why doesn't it well within us and spill out on everybody? Because we're not resting in the gospel. My friends, everything is centered around Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, the New Testament, all point to Him. He is the cornerstone, the chief, the rock, the one who came to save you and me. And Paul is reminding them the gospel is the center of all things. Be grateful for what he's done. The fourth aspect is the aspect of returning. Because eager expectation of the return of Christ strengthens the believer's faith and gratitude. Look at 7b through 8 again. He says, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even your sustenance through this horrible, painful life comes through Christ. We wait eagerly for the return of Christ. He's encouraging them to wait eagerly for the return of Christ. And that's what the whole 40 days of Lent is all about, an eager expectation of the return of Christ, reminding ourselves of the resurrection and the power that the resurrection had. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15 that the resurrection proves that Christ is Lord, proves that all of the promises he says are true. He says to the Corinthians that if the the resurrection did not happen, we of all people should be pitied because what we believe is a sham. But it's not a sham because Christ rose. Amen? And if Christ promised he would rise, and then Christ promised he will return, that means what? He's going to return. And so he's like, listen, live your life with eager anticipation of the return of Christ. Warren Wiersbe says, Christians who are looking for their Savior will want to keep their lives above reproach. When we're looking for our Savior, we will want to have hearts that are ready for the return of of the king. It's all through the stories that Jesus tells in his parables of those who are to be ready, waiting, watchful for the return of the king. His goal is for their confession and repentance to continuously be up to date, for them to be right with the Lord so that when Christ comes, they can just jump in his arms saying, I was ready for you to come. Sadly, I don't think that we have an eager anticipation of the return of the king. Our eschatology, the theology of the end times, is weak. It's anemic because we think too much about all the the symbols and the things and this and that. (gasps) Here's all you need to know about the end times. Jesus returns. Done. That's the goodness of the belief of what Scripture tells us. Jesus returns. And because he returns, he wins. 
Don't you want to be on the winning side? It's like someone says that you're going to be on the winning soccer team. They will always win every single time that team will win. And if you're not on that team, every single time you're going to lose. If you're any kind of competitive person, you'll say, put me on the winning team. Right? I see that Callahan. He loves soccer. Put me on the winning team. The return of Christ. All right. I just get passionate about it. The spirit just moves. I got to stop just going into that. That's, it's, it's so good, though. Please, live in that. Sword states, God's purposes and God's future are greater than the present experience of God's grace in Corinth. So Paul implies that the Corinthians should not be overly self-satisfied with the richness of God's gifts to them. They were so excited about the things that they were doing as a church, patting themselves on the back so much that they weren't looking to the future. They actually thought that they had attained the fullness of what God had for them because it was so great and so glorious. We're so awesome. We've got everything. It's, man, we got heaven. You have small portion. Paul reminds the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, that the Holy Spirit, which means then the fruit and the gifts that come from the Holy Spirit and the glorification of Christ that we see on earth is but a down payment. I mean, have you ever put a down payment on a house? It's a very small, meager amount to what you're going to owe later. The same is true. The aspects of heaven that we see on earth today are just a down payment. Eagerly anticipate what God is going to do in glory because the things that we see now, they're only a small portion of what heaven will be. The fifth and final aspect that we see in this passage of living a grateful Christian life is the aspect of fellowship. God's faithfulness brings about the beauty of true fellowship. God's faithfulness brings about the beauty of true fellowship. He says this, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That word faithful in Greek is pistos, and it means faithful, dependable, and trustworthy, which means that if God says it, God will do it. He is faithful. He's the only being that has been and will be and always will be faithful. I mean, you and I, we're, we're, we're messed up. We're not always faithful in our thought life and our actions. We're not always faithful, but he is always faithful. And he will be faithful to the end. And that faithfulness brings us into fellowship with him. Koinonia, perfect connection, relationship intimacy, abiding. Man, that is powerful. That is amazing that we can have fellowship with the Son of God, the creator of all things. We can spend time with Him in fellowship. That's huge. That's huge. That is a powerful reality. Fee rightfully states, the God of Israel was a faithful God, always reliable, always true to Himself, who could therefore be counted on to fulfill all of his promises. We see this in Deuteronomy 7, 9, Psalm 144, 13. It's not just something that we see in 1 Corinthians. It's something that is throughout the entirety of Scripture, that God is faithful. Even in the garden, when circumstances seemed absolutely irredeemable, Jesus was promised. He said, one will come who will crush the head of the serpent. 
Jesus, the, the redemption plan, the rescue plan from all eternity was already put into place. And here he states in the first time to humans that you will be rescued. There is a possibility of redemption. He's coming. And guess what? He came. God is faithful. God keeps his promises. God desires fellowship with you and with me. In Christ, our relationship to the Lord can be restored. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what you've done. Your relationship with Christ can be restored through the death and resurrection of Christ. That should blow your mind because I know internally how messy I am, my thought life, my action life, and you do too if you stop and think about it. But God set in motion a rescue plan for you that you can receive and have redemption and restoration for your soul. Fee will continue. This language is to be understood not only positionally as one who is saved, but also relationally in fellowship. Believers are not only in Christ and as such freed from the guilt of their sins, but are also in fellowship with Christ and as such are privileged to commune with Him through the Spirit. This helps us to be grateful. And gratitude grows the more we abide in fellowship with Christ. Gratitude grows the more we abide in fellowship with Christ. Have you found yourself grumpy and not grateful? There's one answer. Spend time with Christ. Get in your word. Get on your knees. Praise the Lord through song. Praise the Lord through the goodness of what he's done. Just go through the list of all the good things that you know you have in your life and be in the presence of Christ. There you will find your grumpiness begins to melt away and your gratitude continues to grow. There are sadly a lot of grumpy Christians that live in the world and I don't understand it. People get so stressed out. Man, it, I get stressed out because you're stressed out. I'm not usually a stressed out person. I'm pretty chill. And then people are like, <gasps> and I'm like, please just calm down. Just, just simmer down now. Because it doesn't have to be so stressful. We don't have to be grumpy because we have the beauty of Christ and we can abide in fellowship with him. Did you know that the Lord's presence is the greatest gift we can receive? Do you know why heaven is going to be so great? It's not because the pearly gates or the gold streets. It's not even because of the songs that are going to be sung. It's not even because of the multi-ethnic group of people who will be there. It's because God's presence in all of its fullness exists in heaven. Hell is so horrible because God's presence is not there in its fullness. That's why it's awful. The separation from the presence of the living God. But because Christ tore the veil at his death and resurrection, we have access to his presence. Now, not in its fullness, but in part, but in heaven in its fullness. And when he returns, man, oh, the beauty. But we can live in gratitude now by abiding in fellowship with him. May we keep our eyes on Christ and off of ourselves. Because when you start navel-gazing, as they call it in the olden days, basically means looking in the mirror and winking at yourself. When you do that, you miss the fullness of God's presence. Because it's not about us. It's about Jesus. Amen?
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We are grateful for what you have done. May we live in that gratitude as we abide in your presence. The goodness of the gospel brings the gifts that you, the giver, have for us. May we walk as grateful Christians. In your holy and precious name, amen.